0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: The context was that no real big successes were happening in the desert in 1940-41, to until, in a sense, groups like the SAS got going. Now, it's no small achievement that the SAS could destroy the equivalent of half what the entire Royal Air Force could destroy on a good day.
2: That was John Lewis talking about the SAS's impact on the Second World War.
0: listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
2: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, we've been speaking to John Lewis, whose uncle Jock was one of the founders of the SAS. He was interviewed by our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, and the interview took place at the National Army Museum, which has just opened a new exhibition about special forces.
3: We're here at the National Army Museum in Chelsea in London Just as a new exhibition opens on the history of the special forces which originated from the commander units created during the Second World War, it's a great pleasure to be talking with John Lewis, who's the author of a biography on Jock Lewis, a co-founder of the Special Air Service, the SAS. John, many might know the name of David Stirling, who's perhaps more widely known as a founder of the SAS, so could you introduce us to Jock and how you've named his story?
1: I'm named after uh, Lieutenant Jock Lewis. uh, John was his first name, Jock was his nickname. So I'm named after him, which is fantastic, and it almost I was destined to uh, look at his life. Jock Lewis was born on the 21st of December, 1913, in Calcutta.
3: I understand he was brought up in the Australian outback. How do you think that informed um, his later activities?
1: Yes, I, I, I mean, we've got fabulous pictures, Black of my pictures of him in the outback with my father. They encouraged each other. Um, they went on treks. Uh, pone, they had their own pony. They had their own rifles. They were only 13. Um, they were mixing explosives at the age of 10 and a half to 11. Uh, they had their own chemistry set, the equivalent of a school chemistry set. Had a, an amazing amount of discipline at home, but they had fantastic experimentation possibilities in the Australian outback. And um, Jock was really growing up as like a ranger. I mean, he, was, he, he could travel out for days. He could camp. Um, they were shooting rabbits, shooting snakes, sometimes avoiding poachers. He took pot shots at them. And he and his brother, my father, were given these wonderful opportunities to, to t- they, yeah, they toughened up. They were outside. You toughen up when you're outside, and um, of course, that's you're just outside all the time in the desert war.
3: And then skipping on it a little bit from there, he went on to Oxford University of Oxford. What can you tell us about his life there?
1: Well, I think that is a, a very important episode. Having been made captain of boats at Kings School, Parramatta, uh, while still at school, he applies for Oxford, and um, he he takes responsibility. In his own college for certain things administrative things um but very soon it's quite clear to the boat club the oxford university boat club that uh, jock lewis is uh, a very able oarsman but also he is a brilliant manager and leader of men and i think this is very important fact about jock lewis he He was actually very successful before he even came to the desert. He knew about men. He knew how how to lead them. He knew how to manage them. He selected not necessarily the best oarsmen. And interestingly, even in the SES, he he, uh, later didn't select necessarily the best all-round fighters. But people who had expertise in different areas. What's what is most important? It's not the Jock Lewis in the organisation. It, 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 it's not the it's not Jock Lewis before the organisation. It's the organisation and the winning before Jock Lewis. And, you know his priorities are very clear.
3: What was his path then to towards the military?
1: Jock Lewis joined the Tower Hamlets Rifles. Um, um, he, you know, he he knew that the the war clouds were looming in Europe and um, he wanted to continue his work as a leading cadet, as a schoolboy. And um, he also wanted to serve either Australia or Britain. And he decided that the best course for him was to join the fledgling British Council. So it had only been going about five or six years. And Lord Lloyd um, chose him to, Jock was a brilliant organiser, uh, chose him to, to organise the entire lecture programme in Europe. Now that's a very responsible job because at that point, um, Britain and the West were fighting the anti value of totalitarian powers. So actually, to be organising someone like that was a great responsibility.
3: And how old was he at this
1: point? <laughs> at that point, uh, he was only 25. And in fact, Lord Lloyd trusted him so much that there was a real danger that Portugal would veer towards Spain and that both of those countries would not be neutral. There was every reason to suspect that and that would have really um, made us vulnerable in the Mediterranean. You know, he was highly trusted by leading members of British society uh, and he was given... Very uh, big uh, important roles on an administrative level and and therefore we have an expert leader and manager of men even before he arrived in North Africa. so you know asking these questions about his background is very important because um, I think this made a huge difference to special service in North Africa, in 1941.
3: So what was the situation in North Africa when Lewis arrived and why did he spot this need for a service such as the SAS?
1: Well, that's a very good question. The fact of the matter is, almost as soon as he got off the boat, the commandos who'd been waiting for a fighting role found that Greece had been invaded and they were supposed to be buttressing... um, strategic points in the Mediterranean, and now they couldn't. And so a real limbo descended upon the commando in the middle of 1941. He arrived in early March in 1941, and um, you had various commando raids here and there, and um, some had some success, but others, were not bringing back any material evidence of any impacts. I'll, I'll give you an example of what the commandos were doing. The commandos were given troop ships, which were huge, lumbering, noisy vehicles, and they were doing raids with 200 men, and they had been trained for attacking France. So the whole night sky in the desert in Egypt is completely different. So even before they hit the beach, a blind Arab selling eggs two miles inland knows they're coming. And then when they arrive, their training isn't appropriate. It's all lit up by the night sky and um, they, they were floundering we've got evidence that things were really going awry. The service cinema was burnt down by British soldiers and others in Cairo. Well, you know, something's going terribly wrong. They're they're kicking their heels. There's lots of fights between different inter-services at different times, not just them. It could be Canadians or, or Australians or whatever. But the thing is, the men had lost an objective... And, you, you know, it, it was an impossible situation. Not only that, the men were promised action. They were told, leave your, leave your possessions in the uh, bank, Ottoman bank in Alexandria. You won't need them. We're going into action. Canceled operations. We're going into action. Another cancel operation. The men were actually furious. Jock didn't, um, he wasn't someone who sulked. So he used his energy to create his own war. He didn't wait to be directed. He went out and did it himself. So he applied to Brigadier Laycock for six men and Brigadier Laycock was open-minded and um, a, a positive commanding officer who said, yes, have six men. But Jock had asked for 40, but at least he had six. And those six, he, could do any training with whatsoever.
3: What well, what kind of training and tactics were those? Can you can you tell what can you tell us about them?
1: When he travelled on the boat, having done good training at a lot in Scotland and and other uh, places to sharpen his skills, um when he when he was on the boat, he could see that people were not necessarily keeping fit. Obviously on the boat there's you know there's Alcohol, it wasn't a great combination when you came out into Egypt. You know, you got funny tummy. Officers were sick. Jock hit the road running, though, when he came off the boat. And his letters from March show that he was sharpening up his own troop with all sorts of skills. Um, one I've mentioned before was firing Uh, rounds very close to his men's heads he was a marksman getting them used to the sound of enemy gunfire how close the gunfire was did you need to really move out of line this sort of thing the police followed the ss training on this in the 1990s in this country jock lewis was doing this in march 1941 and um this is not all he was doing of course navigating by the stars navigating in daylight moving around in dark. Jock Lewis was concerned that there'd been talk about special service in Egypt amongst the British Army, but he really was struggling to find it. First of all, before Jock put his parachute six uh, through all the process, he experimented on himself. So, March, he reports to his father, I've got those letters, and I believe these are the first letters of the embryonic essays." He, he says, I, I'm going out, I'm walking into the desert, I'm stretching my stamina, I'm counting how many meters I go, I just use 10 pebbles from pocket to pocket, counting how many yards, going through very minimal rations, one bottle of water, a few cups of tea before I go out, or perhaps an orange, some nuts and raisins. And then halfway through, all those rations, I'll turn back. Now, he might have been going for further than 30 miles, but the point is he had no medical vehicle or radio support. He could have died on those marches, and he knew that. But he also knew that if he didn't do something there's a chance that he would never get back at all. It, it was a real, of real importance to him to take the fight to the enemy. And so he, it's March and April, he was looking at gunboats as a possible way of attacking the enemy in April. And um, this is corroborated by uh, people like Sir Carol Mather. And he applied for 40 men in May and he watched the films about the German parachutists in Crete and he realised that although they were doing daylight raids, he was going to go for night raids because Jock Lewis was all about surprise attacks because he knew he had to do something better than the Nazis. And so Jock, with his parachute group of six, had got one of the first elements of... Uh, particularly the Special Air Service, which is small raiding groups. Um, And um, his planned operations were to damage the enemy based on evidence, based on prisoners' reports, uh, prisoners' letters, um, showing certain weak points uh, behind German and Italian lines. And he was going to damage them, but he was going to damage their psychology because... At that time, the Nazis lorded it over the desert. And um, he wanted his men to regard the desert as something they were safeguarding, which did not belong to the Nazis. And um, all his his ideas, all a corollary of all his ideas all linked together to make this damaging uh, impact on... Nazi psychology and infrastructure.
3: I'm particularly interested um, in what you found in a stack of letters um, from uh, Jock Lewis's time in Berlin in the mid 1930s, um, because I believe that there were a few things in there that surprised yourself. Um, I wonder if we could talk about his um, response to the Nazi ideology and what he uh, his activities in Berlin in the mid
1: 1930s. Yes, I, I, I mean, it was normal for people to travel into Europe. Um, anybody who wanted to educate themselves would do that. And, uh, but then it, it, it kind of developed. He, of course, he was organizing um, the lecture program back home for people in Europe. So going to Europe was quite normal for him to do this, mixed with work, business and pleasure. And it's no surprise, someone, the professional soldier Jolt Lewis, with the amount of discipline he had, Clearly, he was impressed with the hard work and discipline of the Germans. I mean, he he admired that because he was a worker. He, he he was a grafter. He wasn't afraid. You know, it's it's most strange. Um, he has been depicted in rather extreme terms. He, he described as as rich, he had enormous. He spends enormous amounts of money, but he didn't have. He didn't leave any money because he spent it all. Yes, he he was more well off certainly than many students. Um but he went to Germany and so he he was interested in the regime. He photographed the regime. I've still got some unpublished photographs of that. He had some good connections in Berlin. Um he he had an aunt in Berlin. Um so he was invited to the Berlin yacht club ball he he had a girlfriend there who was partly portuguese um but i there is an exaggerated view that he became a national socialist well he'd already described communists as nitwits and extremists as nitwits so in letters, so it doesn't quite sit with that. But he did hope that Hitler would purge himself of his evil, and he hoped that the hard work of the Germans would come to something. Jock Lewis was an an internationalist. He believed in making friends abroad. He believed that if we made friends abroad, we could have peace in Europe. And our... Uh, his depiction as being very right wing m- means that anybody writing that hasn 't read all the letters that I published because he was, if you like, I suppose he was he might have been right or center, but he was he was no extremist. and um, he he really once Crystal Night happened. Remember that the Nazis hid anti-Jewish signs in 1936 during the Berlin Olympics. Um, they were deceitful and they put on a show. But by 38, uh, it was clear that he, he realised he would need to take up arms against the Nazis. And he, he joined Tam Hamlet's Rifles in 1938. So he, was, he wanted although a very busy British councillor, he was also prepared to put time in to defend what he knew would inevitably be almost likely a war. And so I, I hope that helps to answer a little bit of that.
3: I think another very interesting um, aspect is um, how he and David Sterling worked together. And we've got a letter in front of us um, a letter written by David Stirling, um, who's the co-founder of the SAS. Uh, could you explain to the listeners what, what the letter is and who it was sent to um, and uh, why it's on display?
1: Yes, I, I mean, the, the letter uh, on display at the National Army Museum was written to Jock's father, my grandfather, uh, in November 1942. It was written n- not quite a year after Jock died. Um, David Sterling had been extremely busy in 1942 helping the brigade become a regiment. But David Sterling, you know, he was a gentleman and like a true officer, he, he needed to care for his men, just like Jock had written to his men's families. And David Sterling was writing to Jock Lewis's family. And he... It was it was probably very difficult for him because he wanted to write this letter earlier, but he'd been very busy. So he says, I hardly know how to begin this letter. Any form of explanation is so inadequate as to be not worthwhile presenting. Jock could far more genuinely claim to be the founder of L Detachment and the SES regiment than I. Well, that, that, that was uh, a... That was appropriate. Certainly, Jock Lewis, you could argue, was the founder of the Earl Detachment in the sense that the first men, who had already been trained by him, helped to form a nucleus. Jock led men who became known as the Tobruk Four, the four NCOs, the engine room of the SS. Jock worked with those men a great deal, led them in action, gained their loyalty and brought them with him. So they were the engine of L detachment. Jock was the ideas man and who put it into action, experimented on himself, and that freed Sterling to protect the SAS in Cairo against doubters and doubting Thomas's in HQ Cairo. Uh, I, I mean, David Sterling, like John Lewis, um, was, I think, very, very open minded. And um, they both shared very good values. Uh, they both did not enjoy killing. And they both wanted to shorten the war. They would have known each other on the Glenroy ship which left Scotland for um, Egypt uh, in late December 1940, they would have met probably also occasionally on commando training in Scotland. Uh, Obviously, David Stoney was in the Scots Guards, Jock in the Welsh Guards, and they were um, number three commandos, had Scots Guards, and number eight, a lot of Welsh Guards there. So they, they, they knew each other on the boat, David Sterling picked up on what Jock also picked up on, which is rather uninspiring leadership. And um, I, David Sterling didn't react well to that. I, I don't think my uncle enjoyed it very much either. But the simple fact of the matter is, um, they could, well, they, they didn't find any special service or not what had been talked about. Sterling had met now a peer who was inspiring. We, Jock was piloting his schemes for special service in March and April. He considered raiding in gunboats in April. And by he'd applied for 40 men in May, Sterling almost certainly knew about this. He certainly knew that Jock had six men by the beginning of June. And Sterling said, can I join your parachute experiments? And um, Sterling got injured in that. When he got injured, it actually potentially could have driven nails into the coffin of Jock Lewis's pioneering group because that would say, the top boss would say, look, we got this, this uh, officer's now nearly killed himself in your experiments. But that didn't happen straight away. David Sterling, in the letter that's been displayed at the National Army Museum today, uh, he says Jock knew that the commando wasn't mounting effective raids. And he knew that there had to be a solution to this. And he had, David Sterling says he planned meticulous raids. The letter says, later, by virtue of his astonishing qualities of leadership, determination and skill in all fieldcraft, he established himself as the crack patrol commander in his section of Tobruk. That's a bit later on. That's July. But in the June, Sterling goes to hospital. He reviews Jock Lewis's ideas. He's got the opportunity to mull this over, to rewrite some of the ideas. Jock's in Tobruk pushing further than other soldiers by riding inside the enemy lines. This is obviously what he is good at. He's so good at it that brigadiers from other groups say, we want Jock Lewis to to lead our men in our group. And Jock is actually getting very tired, but he is doing the raids. And um, we then find Sterling recovering in hospital, he goes to, he's got a lot of, you know, menacing clouds above him, in a personal setting, and he's got to do something about it. And he looks at the ideas of Jock, and that that's fantastic that David Sterling saw not only for his own career but the careers of other young men that Jock's ideas would take off by the end of August. Both men found out that lay force, which was supposed to be about special service, was going to be disbanded. Lay force was Colonel Robert Laycock, uh, who was producing a sharper commander unit, called lay force, and which hopefully would develop special service skills and techniques. But Jock, Jock felt really that he had to go further than this. So what we have, on the 20th of August, David Sterling actually wrote a letter home saying, I'm, I'm not sure whether I'll be staying in, in Egypt because we've been told there's no fighting role and a lot of the men are actually thinking of going back home. Within 10 days, though, uh, we've got Sterling's wonderful, audacious... Um, ...leap into HQ Cairo without permission. It was a brilliant idea of his. It was a last fling at getting this going. And he got into Rich's office, the deputy commander after Auchinleck. We know that from the letter at the National Army Museum... ...that uh, David Sterling knew he wouldn't be thrown out of uh, Major General Rich's office... And he, if he got into that office, he would be able to put the proposal for the Special Air Service, not six men, Jock six men, but 60. And it was largely based on Jock Lewis's methods and training arrangements. Sterling had heard from Lewis, Lewis's concerns, deep concerns, about opposition from within the army. And that made, alerted Sterling to basing himself in Cairo and letting Jock do the day-to-day running. It was an uh, obvious splitting of responsibilities because those responsibilities were both essential. And as um, Jock Lewis writes to his father, he, indicates that this duo could only work with each man. In chapter 10 of Chuck Lewis, co-founder of the SAS, the heading of the chapter is, Together we have fashioned this unit. David has established it without. And I think I may say, I have established it within.
3: I'd love to talk about the type of raids that these men in particular, Jock, were kind of behind. One I'd like to talk about in particular is Operation Squatter. So when did that take place and what, what can you tell us about
2: that?
1: Well, o- Operation Squatter was the first big test of the SAS's training. Um, and as I've said, the SAS training uh, officially, <laughs> of course, it began in beginning of September, but of course Jock had done preparation work in the previous six months. Um, The the real problem for the SES was that, remember, we talked about the lack of role for the commando in the previous year. So this is all dogs for men all the time. They were ready, but they had to take the opportunity they were given. Because as I've discussed with you, Lewis had warned Sterling about the opposition in HQ Cairo, and they they were now in a position where an offer was made by, for mid-November to make a raid, and they felt they couldn't refuse it because what would happen if they refused it? Someone, someone interfering in HQ Cairo, who didn't want paper, extra paperwork for a private army. That seemed like a Primus army, it wasn't, but they might object, they might withdraw more resources, the SAS might fold. So, the night of the 16th to 17th of November, they were supposed to do a behind the lines raid to support Orkinex's uh, uh, strategy. And what happened was it was the most fierce hurricane for 30 years. So it's twi- 30 mile an hour hurricane twice the speed of maximum wind speed for parachuting safety and they took they took the decision to do it and the point is it's it was a disaster for 40 men by the capsule died and of course this was an absolute tragedy but you have to look at it from their point of view they had to dis- they had to do they had to make the decision to do it They had to do it because there would have been no SAS possibly without that decision. So what good came out of it? The good that came out of it was that over 20 men, because of Jot Lewis's training, which he'd begun in March 1941, which he developed, the training of walking back and enduring terrible conditions, they walked back over 50 miles. They'd never have done that without Jock Lewis. Jock Lewis developed the, the Lewis marches, the water discipline. And the men who got back knew that if they could do that, they could do anything.
3: Um, going back to something you said earlier, you mentioned that he um, had experimented with some demolition early earlier in his life. And I'd like to talk about the Lewis bomb, um, which was one of his innovations. So maybe you could tell us a bit about that.
1: Yes, I mean, Jock had and my father had both grown up mixing explosives as boys, and doing eventually doing quite a good job of it. There were a few accidents, and Jock nearly lost his finger, and uh, there was shrapnel everywhere. You basically collected mostly in the thighs of the boys, but the fact of the matter is, they survived, and um, Jock had an enduring interest in chemistry, which his younger brother was an exponent of, and then. When they were in the desert, but the thing was that, okay, so within two months there was an elite force who's been trained by Jock. It had Lewis Marches, Lewis Discipline, Lewis Water Discipline, Navigation, all these things, um, marksmanship, etc. The fact is that the Special Air Service was not going to be any more significant. The long-range long desert route was significant, but it wouldn't be any more significant or significant in a different way without the teeth of weaponry. It would just be a reconnaissance force with an occasional firefight. Because, yet again, at HQ Cairo, Jock Lewis and David Sterling were told, we don't have anything lighter than a five-pound bomb. And that bomb... isn't isn't going to be capable of being an explosive and an incendiary. We've got an explosive, you can have that, you can have an incendiary, and they're quite heavy, but we haven't got anything else. And actually, the ordnance group in HQ Cairo wasn't that interested in helping particularly, or thinking about it. It's always been like this, so that's what we've got. Well... That is basically going to put nails in the coffin of the SAS. So, who comes up with the Lewis bomb? It gives the SAS teeth. They can now destroy whole airfields. How did he do it? Well, new plastic explosive PE-808 had just become available. Mixture of iron filings and the normal ingredients for explosive. And then... Jock experiments in his spare time, of course. He makes his own bomb. It's an explosive, and it's an incendiary, and it weighs one pound. And the SAS can now take between six men, they could take two airfields worth of bombs, and they still wouldn't have to carry an over-excessive amount. But they actually only need to take 30 or 40. And he puts oil in this plastic explosive, and the oil burns. So when the explosive goes off, and a big bang will will actually put out a flame, it'll make a big bang, and it might make a big hole, but it'll put the flame out, but he's added oil. And he's, he's discovered that in October.
3: What can you tell us about how they impacted the war and German forces in the desert?
1: Well, obviously one doesn't want to exaggerate, the impact of any group in a war. But there are certain things, I think, to bear in mind, the context of fighting in 1941. The context is that we were losing the war. The context is that when the war began, the British were outnumbered 25 to 1, all Axis personnel. The context was that no real big successes were happening in the desert in 19. 19- 40 to 41, until, in a sense, groups like the SAS got going. Now, it's no small achievement that the SAS could destroy the equivalent of half what the entire Royal Air Force could destroy on a a good day. Now, it's 60 men versus half a whole branch of the services and they um, were very successful uh, over a hundred vehicles were destroyed by the end of the year um, at that point the enemy were very vulnerable because they just couldn't believe that British soldiers would go f- over 400 miles behind uh, behind enemy lines or on their own with no support group and uh, they they lost whole airfields at the end of December. Uh, Lieutenant Fraser led his men, based on Jock Lewis's training, and destroyed over 30 brand-new Stukas. I mean, this is, this, this is exactly what Churchill had demanded. Churchill said in November, especially when he knew all the fuel ships were coming from Italy to Rommel, he said, action is needed, and it's needed Now, because Churchill knew this was the crucial point of the war. Now, the Axis lauded it over the desert. We know the Nazi arrogance well. They were winning the psychological war. They were were winning the war-destroying infrastructure. They were winning so much... That anybody could be forgiven for feeling a bit uninspired at times. 90% of the shipping going to Malta in November, the month that the SAS began their raids, 90% of all shipping, that's 16 huge vessels, were at the bottom of the Mediterranean. 16 out of 18. 90% of shipping at the bottom of the Mediterranean. The SAS was obviously needed even from a psychological point of view. Although the SAS had various ups and downs, I have to say, uh, after, that's true after Jock's death, um, the, the fact of the matter is that they had a great deal of success spearheading the harsh, the hardest fighting in Italy and France and taking the war to the enemy when the war from the enemy became unbelievably vicious, where they were obviously exterminating large numbers of people, you needed a force capable of challenging them. That is a natural evolution of Jock Lewis's initial objective of making a force at least the equal of people like the SS.
3: You mentioned um, Lewis's uh, death there, and he he died very prematurely, um, aged 28, uh, a year, I believe, before the SAS achieved regimental status in 1942. So what can you tell us about um, Jock's final mission and his death?
1: The time that Lieutenant Fraser had destroyed a whole aerodrome of Stukas, Jock Lewis uh, was on a, a different raid, He'd already um, managed a a daylight raid on um, the enemy with five men in three vehicles, um, destroying over 30 fuel tankers. Um, He'd had his own successes, but he was rendezvousing and waiting for Lieutenant Fraser. And uh, while he was waiting, by that time, the enemy, who hadn't... Guarded aerodromes too well. They wanted revenge. And um uh, Jock and his group were in four trucks, and there were different aircraft, there were scouting aircraft appearing, and they, they wanted they wanted to remedy the the disastrous destruction of their air forces. And um so they were persistent and they saw jock's group and fortunately there were some rocks nearby which the the men hid behind but they had to circle like and play ring-a-ring-a-roses all the time because the planes were going round and round just shooting at them and we don't know exactly why not joining the men round the rocks and getting out of the machine gun fire's way but the fact is he went back to a truck which Know, isn't necessarily correct procedure. It, it's been suggested that there might have been secret documents there. You can, it's not difficult to land a plane in the desert. We don't know. They might have they might have decided to land, or they might have directed traffic to go and pick up uh, the SAS parachutists and pick up their secret papers too. So Jock Lewis went into the vehicle, and Messerschmitt Smith did a low-level attack, and um fired right into the chassis and a 20 millimeter bullet went into Jock's back and um, although he died slightly differently to the letter that David Sterling wrote, because David Sterling was being sensitive and preparing my grandfather to be aware that his son died relatively quickly and he did, but he he had his back blown out in fact I mean he may have cut his uh, femur artery, but his His back was blown out. And I uh, interviewed the man who buried him, uh, Jimmy Story. And Jimmy Story said, you know, Jock managed one word. And and that was Mirren. That was his girlfriend's name. And then he died. Um, uh, You know, Jock was in charge of uh, a lot of those men. And he was in charge of the documents about the raids. So he could have easily gone in for that. However... Having researched and studied him, he could have gone into the truck for his love letters, but we'll never know.
3: You mentioned there that you'd interviewed uh, the gentleman who buried your uncle and you've, um, for the book you interviewed lots of men who would have known him and, and served with him. So what, what were their feelings about your uncle? The,
1: the, the, the words that come across in their interviews that I haven't published yet, the word is trust. They had total trust in my uncle. They would go anywhere with him, in whatever circumstance. The reason? The evidence was there. They could go into a minefield with him, which often means someone's going to have a casualty or catch a bullet or whatever, or a piece of uh, shrapnel. But he'd taken them out of the most dangerous situations. And the other thing that they well knew, and this is actually particularly peculiar, I think, to Jock Lewis, every single thing he asked them to do, he had done it. Now, sometimes writers haven't actually talked to the men who stood next to Lewis and Sterling. And sometimes... Because Jock, it's, it's understandable up to a point, you know, Jock died and people weren't able to interview him. But some of his valour and some of his achievement, and that's what the National Army Museum display of David Stirling's letter in a way sheds light on. Some of what he did was kind of, I don't know, put in, put actually into the life of David Stirling. And, and, and I think probably David Stirling would be the, if he was here today, he'd probably be the first to to say that was the case.
3: So the letter that we've been discussing today um, forms part of the new exhibition at the National Army Museum in Chelsea in London. Um, Special Forces in the Shadows, the exhibition's open now, and it runs in London until the 18th of November 2018. Um, And thank you so much for talking to us on the History Extra podcast, John.
1: Eleanor, thank you so much for interviewing me today.
2: That was John Lewis. John is the author of Jock Lewis, co-founder of the SAS, published by Pen and Sword, and a Spy After All, a novel inspired by the life of Jock Lewis, which is published by Serpent and Dove. And you can find out more about the National Army Museum's Special Forces exhibition at nam.ac.uk. OK, so that's about all for today, and as it's Easter this weekend... Our next episode will be going out on Tuesday, the 3rd of April, when we'll be talking to John Julius Norwich about the history of France. Please do join us for that.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook?